0: Now, please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for February 24th, 2023. I'm Joy LaClaire. Our guest today, Dennis Barron, is Professor Emeritus of English and Linguistics at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. His research focuses on the technologies of communication Language Legislation and Linguistic Rights, Language Reform, Gender Issues in Language, and among his earlier books are Grammar and Gender, A Better Pencil, Readers, Writers, and the Digital Revolution, and What's Your Pronoun, Beyond He and She. His latest book, You Can't Always Say What You Want, The Paradox of Free Speech, was published yesterday by Cambridge University Press. We spoke with him via Skype on February 21st, 2023. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Professor Dennis Barron. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Joy, it's great to be here today.
0: We are recording this interview on February 21st, 2023. And on this day, 58 years ago, Malcolm X was assassinated as he was beginning to speak at the Audubon Ballroom in New York City. In a very literal sense, Malcolm X wasn't able to say what he wanted because he was murdered. Also today, the Supreme Court of the United States is hearing oral arguments in a case that you write about in your book, Gonzales v. Google. It seeks to hold Google's YouTube liable for the death of a woman in 2015 when Islamic State-linked militants murdered 23-year-old American student Nohimi Gonzalez amid a terrorist attack in Paris that left 129 people dead. Gonzalez's family sued Google for aiding and abetting terrorism under the Anti-Terrorism Act. The family claims that YouTube. YouTube's algorithmic recommendation engine suggested and promoted videos posted by the Islamic State that recruited followers and encouraged violence. At issue in the case is whether or not these algorithms are themselves covered by Section 230's liability protection. This is just a bit of the historical context in which we find ourselves. You begin, you can't always say what you want, with... Donald Trump's January 6, 2021 rally, and you posit former President Trump's second impeachment defense that he was merely exercising his First Amendment right to freedom of speech by writing about the wording, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. You write, and I'm quoting, It turns out that no in the Constitution doesn't always mean no. And that's the end of quoting your book. What impelled you to write, you can't always say what you want, and beginning the book with January 6th?
1: Okay, so I began it with a reference to the riot on January 6th, partly because of the question of who's responsible. Were Donald Trump's words actually inciting the rioters to storm the Capitol, to attack law enforcement, to try to find lawmakers to punish however they intended to punish them. They were shouting, hang Mike Pence was the phrase somebody said a mock gallows outside the the Capitol. It was a pretty messy day. It was a horrible day. We watched it unfold in real time on TV as it was transpiring. Are the words of Of Donald Trump saying before the riot you need to fight to take back your country use the word fight I think approximately 20 times does that constitute incitement to riot because if it does that is not the kind of speech that's protected by the First Amendment even though the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech actually Congress has made, or the government in general has made, a number of laws that do limit certain kinds of speech, that that criminalize certain kinds of speech. Threats are illegal. It's illegal to defame somebody. It's illegal to engage in criminal conspiracy. You can't lie under oath. False advertising is illegal. There there, there are a whole bunch of carve outs to that First Amendment speech protection. It's obscene speech is not protected. And so it's not enough to simply invoke what you think are your First Amendment rights because it's a complicated issue. It's nuanced and there are all sorts of pushbacks that limit what we can say. And if it's not a legal limit on speech, then there are all kinds of social limits on speech as well that impose filters so that we don't get the kind of reaction to our speech that that we, we don't want to have.
0: You note that there are two threats to freedom of speech. One is using freedom of speech to suppress the speech of others, which I think you were just alluding to. And the other is using the Second Amendment to silence others, which we noted earlier with the assassination of Malcolm X. And the Second Amendment is something that you have written about in fact, you were lead author of an amicus brief in District of Columbia v. Heller before the U.S. Supreme Court, providing an interpretation of the Second Amendment based on the grammars, dictionaries, and general usage common when it was adopted, and showing that those meanings are still common today. The brief was mentioned positively in the dissenting opinion of Justice Stevens and negatively in Justice Scalia. Leah's majority opinion deciding the case. And it was fascinating to read in your book the six versions of the Second Amendment before the adoption of the final one. So please share with our listeners what was at stake in the Heller decision, your analysis of the evolution of the wording of the Second Amendment, and how the Supreme Court ruling interprets it and I want to point out that you point out that the usual originalists on the Supreme Court reversed their method to become flexible and interpreting in a living constitutional way, while the more liberal judges took a more strict originalist position in their rulings. So take it from there, Dennis Barron. <laughs>
1: this is a big question, big, big question. What you've got in the Second Amendment is a 27-word sentence, and what you've got in the Supreme Court are nine justices who spend their entire professional lives interpreting the meaning of the law, the meaning of documents, the meaning of statutes, the meaning of the Constitution. And one of the most interesting things for me in terms of looking at how judges interpret law is that you've got five of the justices on the court reading that one sentence and saying it means a protection of the individual right to own weapons for any lawful purpose. And you've got four justices who look at that 27-word sentence and say it means Americans have a collective right to community self-defense, to keeping weapons in terms of not the individual use of self-defense, but protecting the community from external and internal threats. If you've got nine, whatever you think about the individual justices, ostensibly reasonable people who have been doing this for a long time, coming to opposite interpretations of the same sentence, that tells you a lot about the process of interpreting what we hear and what we read. And it tells you a lot about interpreting legal language. There is disagreement. Five to four is not exactly a clear one side is right, the other side is completely wrong. Unfortunately, majority rules in these decisions, and so that's how the law is read. It shows you that when you're making these decisions, your experience, your ideological predilections, your bias, if you will, impacts how you read a sentence. And it doesn't matter whether it's a sentence in the Constitution or a couple of words on a shopping list. We all look at it and interpret the words based on a whole bunch of complicated factors that are fairly subjective. And so coming to the conclusion that this is objective truth is really kind of a stretch. Because these things get decided and then they get relitigated, redecided, reinterpreted in many cases. If we didn't revise our understanding of the law, we'd be living under slavery, women wouldn't vote. There would be all kinds of stuff that we take for granted today that in the founding era, in the 18th century, people tended to look at it quite differently. And even then a lot of this stuff was controversial. It's not like there is unanimous agreement on everything.
0: Can you briefly talk about the changes that were made from the first version of what became the Second Amendment and how that has made it what we're stuck with, to put a fine point on
1: it? <laughs> <laughs> how we got to the version that, that the states ratified, and which is the act that made it part of our constitutional structure. Madison drafted the Second Amendment and a combination of House and Senate committees looked at it and tweaked it, edited it, revised it five more times until it was finally approved. And what what you have starting out and what you have ending up with, the things that make it all the way through are a stress upon the importance of a well-regulated militia and the right to keep and bear arms. So the question is, how do we get from an interpretation for the first century or more? People looked at the Second Amendment and said, yeah, this, this protects the community right to keep and bear arms because it talks about the militia. It's about military service. The militia eventually became, in the early 20th century, the National Guard. And it's basically a stand-in for the military as, as we think of it today. How do we get from that to an interpretation in Heller which essentially says keeping and bearing arms has nothing to do with anything military. It just means toting guns, the ability for individuals to have weapons. The Heller court under Justice Scalia and the other conservatives basically said – You can discount the militia clause, A well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state. The right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And Heller basically says, forget about the militia. It's just a bit of constitutional throat clearing. The effective part of the amendment is the right to keep and bear arms, and there's no point in keeping and bearing arms unless individuals are able to use them for any lawful purpose. For example, self-defense. Justice Scalia said, undoubtedly, the framers had self-defense in mind when they wrote the Second Amendment. I don't know how he is able to read their minds because they didn't say anything about individual self-defense. It's nowhere in the Constitution, nowhere in the discussions uh, around the amendment. What they talked about was the amendment began with an exception embedded in it, saying that anyone scrupulous of bearing arms could be excused from having to bear them. So what that means basically in modern English is we're talking about conscientious objectors, pacifists who don't want to carry guns in what kind of situation? Military situations. Basically, this was in the first drafts of the Second Amendment to exempt Quakers, members of the Society of Friends in the 18th century, who were pacifists. They carried weapons for hunting. There's nothing wrong with that. But they would not carry them in any military exercise. So it was a way of framing the Second Amendment so that Quakers would not have to serve in the military.
0: The first of the versions begins with the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. The second then moves a well-regulated militia to the beginning, and every ensuing version has it first. You used a linguistic database that was not available, you write, to Justice Scalia at the time of the ruling. And the meaning at the time of what the specific wording Bear arms as opposed to have a gun. Talk about that.
1: Justice Scalia argued that the meaning of bear arms in the 18th century was simply carrying a weapon. Bear is a synonym for carry, and he said it has got no military implications. Surely you can bear arms against an enemy if you're in the army, but he said bear arms without the preposition against is just a synonym for carry. So all it means is that people can carry weapons. So when these databases came online about five or six years ago, but the data was always there. It just was not easy to search. And so by digitizing all these 17th, 18th, 19th century texts and putting them online so any researcher can look up a word or a phrase and see how it was used in hundreds, sometimes thousands of cases. So I looked up bear arms in these databases of what we call early modern English or federal English and other of approximately 1,500 uses of the two words together, bear arms, seven of them did not refer to a military context or were ambiguous. They could be interpreted either as having a military meaning or not having a military meaning. So seven out of 1,500 suggests that bear arms was basically a military idiom.
0: I'm so glad that you included this in the issue of the First Amendment, because we're living in times where a certain segment of the population is quite willing to bear arms in ways that another segment of the population finds threatening and chilling to their First Amendment rights. And I I will note that the leading cause of children's death now in the United States is from... Gunshots. But let's get back to the First Amendment. The First Amendment was passed in 1791, and then very shortly after that came the Sedition Act. Talk about that.
1: In 1798, just a few years after the First Amendment said that the government can't interfere with your speech, can't censor you, basically, the Adams administration passes the Sedition Act, 1798, which basically says you can't criticize the government. Anybody who speaks or writes anything that's harmful to the president or members of the Congress criticizing administration policy, that's illegal. And the idea behind it was ostensibly to prevent some kind of French revolution happening in the United States to keep the radical elements in their place. But it was basically A way of silencing Adams' political enemies, and a bunch of newspaper editors were arrested, tried, convicted, they were fined for criticizing Adams' policies, then a couple of them thrown in jail. People are afraid even to raise the issue of, is this a violation of the First Amendment? Because even questioning Adams' intentions could put them in legal jeopardy. So his critics who did anonymously raise the issue of, hey, this this is a violation of the First Amendment, But the courts ignored that. Even the Supreme Court justices, whose job at the time involved basically riding the circuits and holding court in different parts of the country in federal cases, prosecuted. And convicted newspaper editors and publishers for violating the Sedition Act. And the Supreme Court has historically been a big supporter of the First Amendment, certainly in the last century. But at the time, they saw nothing wrong with supporting the Constitution and enforcing the Sedition Act. When the Adams administration was over in 1800 and Thomas Jefferson took over as the third president, the Sedition Act Act had a sunset clause; It expired and it was not renewed. And in fact, I think Jefferson did what he could in certain cases to refund the fines of people who had been punished by the Sedition Act. We had a similar Sedition Act passed in 1918 during World War I, and basically it was used to silence anti-war protests during World War
0: One. That would be the Espionage Act. You write, the U.S. entered the war in April of 1917, and the Espionage Act was enacted in June of 1917 and then amended in 1918 to make it a crime to criticize. We are embroiled in various investigations of former President Trump. And the question comes up, can you even investigate, much less indict, a... A person who is running for office. Well, they had no problem back in that era of not only indicting but convicting Eugene V. Debs, who was the socialist candidate for president. And he was sentenced to a very long term in prison for merely speaking out against the First World War, using a socialist analysis that the war is just a moneymaker for the capitalist. That was his crime. So take it from there, please, Dennis Barron
1: It's kind of interesting because the Espionage Act and then the Sedition Act actually prompted the first cases that the Supreme Court took examining the meaning of the First Amendment, the free speech and free press aspect of the First Amendment. And interestingly enough, what the court concluded In almost all the cases in 1917, 1918, 1919, where they reviewed convictions of anti-war protesters, was that speech that is totally legal and unobjectionable in peacetime can in fact be suppressed in times of national danger, like in times of war. The First Amendment is very important, but it can be suspended, the court said in 1918, In order to protect the greater interest of the state, the survival of the state is at stake and the state has the right to protect itself by suppressing protest. So starting in 1919, you you got some minority views getting expressed where some of the justices said, well, wait, you've really got to define what you mean by speech being dangerous to the state. At what point do you have a situation where the speech is actually going to lead to some violent action that the civil authority has the right to prevent? And it, it took probably, let's say, say from 1919 to 1969, before the court finally came down firmly with a definition of the space that can exist between speech and illegal violent action. And they basically said in 1969, if the words are not followed immediately, imminently, by illegal action, by violence, if there's time to prevent that violence undefined amount of time but if there's time to prevent the violence to intercede to add good speech to counteract bad speech then that speech is protected but if the danger is imminent in other words it can happen there's no chance to prevent the danger from happening then those words are not protected by the first amendment So the question in the Trump case, in the January 6th case is, are his words so closely followed by violent action that a reasonable person can say that the words incited the crowd to violence and led to the illegal actions? In which case his speech is not protected.
0: We are speaking with Dennis Barron about his book, You Can't Always Say What You Want, The Paradox of Free Speech. Well, let me ask you your opinion based on your many years of studying linguistics, English, the laws... Where do you come down on the issue, was former President Trump's use of the term fight exhorting (laughs) them to go to the Capitol and fight, is that protected by the First Amendment, do you think?
1: I personally don't think it is. I think it's a no-brainer. He primed them for action by inviting crowds to Washington for the demonstration. It will be wild, he tweeted before that, and his exhortations during the speech were basically riling up the crowd. He's playing to this crowd and and getting them more and more in a mood to fight. And so I would think that it's a textbook case of imminent lawless action as defined by the Supreme Court. Whether today's Supreme Court would agree is another question, because the makeup of the court today is quite different from what it was in 1969. The court was very liberal.
0: Well, you address the issue of what is a threat, what actually constitutes a threat, and that gets into the issue of intention versus impact. And that gets into some of the cases that lead to the Gonzalez case before the Supreme Court today. Talk about what is a threat?
1: The problem with defining threats legally is that the courts haven't come up with a really effective one-size-fits-all Definition: Basically, you're dealing with, uh, would a neutral party hearing or seeing or reading the words interpret them as a threat? According to the law, the person who utters or writes the assumed threat has to intend the words to be threatening, and they have to be received as a threat. Okay, so here's an example. An angry parent to child, if you don't clean up your room, there will be no TV for the next 373 years. Is that a threat or is that just frustrated language? It's probably not intended as a threat. The kid doesn't see it as something that's likely to happen, but might get the message that, yeah, maybe it's time to pick up some of the stuff and and put it in its place. On the other hand, you've got threats that the speaker says, oh, I just meant it as a joke. But the person on the receiving end feels threatened. Is an objective observer? Do they know enough about the situation, about the relationship, to understand whether the receiver is being oversensitive or the speaker is being ingenuous? I was only kidding. I didn't mean it. In some cases, you don't know that your words are going to have a negative impact, but in other cases, you use it as a shield. I didn't mean that. Actually, you did mean it, but, you know, you're trying to back out of it now because you had some unexpected consequences, some unexpected blowback from your words. So it becomes very very complex and the courts have been all over the place on this and had never have come up with a satisfactory definition at one point the supreme court said it would be really nice if we could get a good case so that we could decide once and for all what the parameters for threatening language are going to be in order to have to prove that something's a threat or to say that it wasn't a threat now gonzalez is a great case and unfortunately oral arguments were this morning in the hour before we were taping, so I did not get a a chance either to listen to it or to look at the live tweeting uh, from observers who were commenting on the questions and the answers. So I'm not sure how the court's going to play out. But basically, you've got the defenders of big technology and the Internet saying we would have to keep Section 230 or the whole Internet as we know it is going to crumble. And the people on the other side basically saying, but there have to be limits. You have to be able to throttle certain kinds of speech to prevent the publication of, uh, for example, uh, lies, hate speech, intimidation, threatening speech, obscene speech, anything like that. It needs to be within the purview of the platform owner how to handle it. The problem with the internet is it, it is so big that humans cannot interpret each post, each piece of information, or each claim, or each uploaded video. To judge whether it is authentic, harmful, insulting, bad taste, whatever your criteria are, there's just two billions of posts making decisions about their quality in microseconds, basically. And machines are not very good at doing this. The algorithms that Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and Google set up are very good at analyzing the content and they have to make split-second decisions. It's basically a fascinating, infuriating kind of situation, because in one sense, the internet is too big to fail, but it's also too big to succeed. So what do you do?
0: The issue seems to come down to the algorithms, and some of the journalists that have been writing about it point out that when the Communications Decency Act of 1996, the business model then was to maximize the number of subscribers, but now the business model is to keep your eyeballs on, and so the algorithms are directed towards that. And the harm of these algorithms is becoming more and more clear Clear every day. And it's not just Islamic terrorists gunning down people in Paris. It's also young women being directed to harmful sites for their body image. And just recently, a young woman was testifying in Congress that when she was 12 years old, she went on, I guess it was YouTube, to find out about a healthy diet. And the algorithm then directed her to anorexia and all these kind of things. So anyway, it's it it is complicated. And I suppose, at the very least, regardless of what the Supreme Court decides, the Communication Decency Act needs to be amended to respond to the change in the business model. At the very least, if not the harm being sure. done. Sure,
1: it's twenty five years old. I mean, we're all the law is always. Playing catch up when it comes to technology, I just can't keep pace with the advances of technology. So what, what you've got basically is an explosion of writing that the internet has enabled. Anybody with a keyboard and access to Wi-Fi can become a writer in the in the sense that you can publish out to the world whatever great or sordid thoughts that you have or anything in between, you know, as well as the pictures of your cute pets, And that initially seems like a very good thing, encouraging more and more people to write, as many people to write as possible. What could be wrong with that? But as soon as lots of people start doing that, there is regulatory pushback. Then we start saying, well, we need to censor speech. Everybody knows how to write, but not everybody should be allowed to write and how do you make those decisions how do you how do you decide who's okay and who is not the internet takes away the filter that traditional publication had where you basically had editors and copy editors and fact checkers looking at text and deciding whether or not it was good enough, ready enough to go before the public. I don't know how many versions of uh, of my book I had to go through before getting something that looked remotely decent so that the publisher would, would say, okay, yeah, we're going to take a chance on it. This is traditional publishing. This is what I grew up with. Now, the Internet has upended all that, and anybody can put whatever they want online. So the question is... Should the Internet be a kind of conduit, like the telephone, basically, where anybody can say anything to anybody? Or should it be reined in, it's probably too late to do that, to make it more like traditional broadcasting or publishing, where you've got editorial control, and you've got some human, rather than an algorithm, who gets to say... What gets published and what gets sent back for revise and resubmit?
0: I think the question is actually beyond that, with all due respect. I think that the issue is the difference between what you were talking about. I don't have a problem with anyone putting things online, no matter how offensive they are. But the algorithms amplify things and direct things regardless of the intention of the person seeking information. And they're doing so with a sordid, in my opinion, purpose, which is not democracy or love or anything like that. It's keeping your attention. The people who were involved in the early formation of things like Facebook and stuff, they are now coming out and saying quite forthrightly, Yeah, we knew what we were doing. We understand human foibles and we understand we use psychology to suck people in. We understand it's addicting and all this kind of, I mean, it's nefarious in the extreme and people are being harmed by it. Now, see, this gets us back to the clear and present danger model of controlling the First Amendment,
1: I agree that the technology companies are in the business of making a profit for the principals, for the stockholders. That's who they're responsible to in terms of their performance. They they keep their jobs by keeping the stockholders happy, basically. On the other hand, the business that they're engaged in, which is basically connecting people together and allowing people to talk to one another, And to talk not just simply one-to-one communication like the telephone, but broadcast communication like radio, TV, podcasting, where it's one-to-many, it's very hard to reconcile on the scale that it has come to. I'm not sure they imagined the scale, the founders of these companies. They did not imagine the kind of scale it would get to. But yeah, their basic principle is, How do we turn Twitter and Facebook? Remember, it took a long time for Twitter and Facebook to start actually turning profits. And basically, the only way to do this is to embed advertising into your platforms, because a click is not going to make you any money unless you get paid to have people click on stuff. And so it's a combination of trying to figure out which posts are going to get the most clicks and are going to get the right kinds of advertising to pay for those clicks because you get served ads along with your clicking so it's not just eyeballs on the site and clicks but clicks that translate into money from advertising that's driving the profit of these companies and when you're dealing on the immense Worldwide scale, I mean, you've got to vet these tweets and Facebook status updates and videos and all the different bits of information that Google and Bing and and the search engines point to. You've got to vet those in multiple languages. You've got to deal with not just text, but image and video in some cases sound as well. Is it even possible to monitor on on that kind of scale and have the kind of instantaneous communication that people seem to want as well on the Internet? There's no point in having an Internet on, I remember the days of dial-up. So uh, unless you can have pretty much instant upload-download, is there terrible harm? Yes, that is being caused. Is there some good that comes out of it? Yes, I think you can point to that too. Is there a lot that's just in the middle that's just there? That's just pictures of cute kittens or recipes that you might want to cook sometime? There's lots of that too. So how do you eliminate as much of the bad as you can? There's always going to be some. And keep as much of the good without sacrificing that as well. I frankly don't know how to do it it's perhaps too big to figure out a way to do it in terms of just the scale of the stuff just automated algorithms make lots of mistakes i have no idea what the court is going to come down on historically in the last 50 60 75 years they've been protectors of free speech they have been the kind of institution that basically says let's let people say as much as they want And the other thing is, to what extent does the government have oversight over private companies like Twitter, Facebook, Google, Instagram, YouTube, and all of those other platforms? Don't forget the First Amendment is about government interference with speech. It's not about private interference with speech, of which there is plenty.
0: We have to acknowledge that without the internet, you and I would not be having this conversation to share with our listeners. So there is that. But, uh, there is
1: that, yes. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, yeah, there is at least some good, right? Assuming this is good, right?
0: Well, I, I say this we, is good that we're having this we discussion. We
1: it is. Hopefully the listeners agree.
0: Listeners should understand that we're leaving out a great deal of information that is in your book. You can't always say what you want, the paradox of free speech. But you do ask the question towards the end, will free speech survive? And you mention one section, more guns, less grammar, which kind of brings us back to the beginning of, (laughs) of the Second Amendment versus the First Amendment. And now you just mentioned that the First Amendment is about the government, but we're experiencing across the country a lot of suppression of what we used to think of as just given First Amendment stuff, banning books, burning books.
1: Emptying the libraries, emptying the classrooms of anything to read, limiting what teachers can say basically trying to subvert the educational system of information provision that we get with public libraries in the name of free speech you've got these lawmakers suppressing speech and i think that's a very big danger when i wrote that Remember, this book was, the the manuscript was sent to the printer a little over a year ago. These things were just starting to happen. They are happening in droves now state after state, governor after governor basically saying you can't say this, you can't say that, you can't do that. If you are a public school teacher, you work for the government. If you are a university professor at a state-funded institution, you work for the government. If you're a government employee of any kind, we're going to shut you up. We're going to tell you what you can't say and what you can't say. It's not new. This kind of censorship. Don't forget in the early 20th century, the state of Tennessee was notorious for banning the teaching of evolution, the famous Scopes Monkey Trial. And now, basically, states like Tennessee, Florida, Texas are saying you can't teach what we loosely call divisive concepts. You can't teach anything critical of America's past. You can't teach about racism. You can't teach about sexism. You can't teach about slavery. You can't teach about any colonialism, any problems that the capitalist system might have. Nope, can't teach that in a class so it's very much a kind of act of speech suppression in the name of protecting speakers who would disagree who would feel uncomfortable who feel threatened by discussions of white supremacy or slavery or, or sexism or sexuality you know, the complexities of sexuality the complexities of of gender and gender identity and and all of these issues that are resonating today and hard right conservatives are basically saying nope, nope, time to shut this down and between that and the guns suppressing speech and basically the technology systems feeding you misinformation and selling your data your private data to to the highest bidder all of these are the current threats to freedom of speech that we need to deal with
0: and there are librarians board of education members city council members leaving for free of their lives and their families' lives. This is really happening. The other aspect that we have not addressed is that of compelled speech. And there's the return of the loyalty oaths in Florida. Professors and teachers are being required to state their political points of view or lose their job. And this is quite worrisome to me. I I wonder what your thoughts are.
1: Totally, totally worrisome. The first man basically says the government can't censor your speech, but it also has been interpreted to mean the government can't make you say something that violates a deeply held belief. In other words, it can't compel you. To speak, And there are exceptions to that, too. But basically, it, it means you can't be forced to pray in school. You can't be forced to pledge allegiance to the flag. And in most cases, legally, you can't be forced to take a loyalty oath, to sign a loyalty oath in order to get a job. There are some jobs, federal jobs, you can be asked to take an oath for. In terms of other kinds of loyalty oaths, that's been off the table for a while. Now, the attempts to bring it back, the attempts to suppress all kinds of speech that has been legally protected for a long time, this is a new danger. It just points to the fact that freedom of speech is always contested. It's always something that speakers have to fight for and censors will fight against. So you never reach a point where you say, ah, okay, okay. We've done that. We're okay now. We've got everything under understood and under control. These are the situations where you can speak freely, and there are a few very minor, very rare ones where you can't. This is always coming back. There's always something new that is generating pushback from the government and speakers finding a way to get around those kinds of regulations, and it's a continual battle.
0: And finally, you don't particularly address this in your book, Dennis Barron, but since we're talking about freedom of speech, the Supreme Court decision in Citizens United that defines money (laughs) as free speech, that has had and continues to have tremendous impact on the state of our democracy.
1: I had a whole section on that, but I had to take it out. Because the book was just too long. So, yeah, I have opinions about Citizens United. Money is speech. And the implications for that are just totally bizarre. Corporate speech is being conflated with individual speech in terms of political speech. And what Citizens United Basically, did was let large organizations bankroll political campaigns, kind of usurping the rights of voters individually to determine who they're going to vote for as a way of mitigating the vote, if you will. Uh, corporations can influence, and, and this includes unions, but it's, it's really the corporations that are the problem are backing candidates that the employees of the corporations don't necessarily vote for. In the sense, it's putting a thumb on the scale in terms of elections that wasn't there before. It's a bad decision.
0: <laughs> We've basically run out of time. Of all the things in your book that we didn't get to, what would you like to share with our listeners?
1: Okay, so, so, so basically remember that government impact on your speech the government's attempt to control your speech most people don't bump up against this in their day-to-day lives but we all deal with the social controls of speech that our jobs our schools our families our friends impose on us and we impose on them and the kind of filters that get applied to speech, what you can and cannot say, that's sort of a natural social process of how we talk to one another. Okay, so it's not so bizarre to think you can only say what you want as long as you're not afraid of facing the consequences of your speech. Most of us tailor our speech to get the consequences that we are after, regulate our speech. Modify our speech so we fit in with the speech community. And just try to remember too that, you know, what the government does is not necessarily going to impact your day to day speech, but it's, it's very symbolic. And you really need to think about how the law and how. The social realities of speech interact. Sorry, it's, it's not a sound bite. It's a complex kind of situation. But communication is very complex. It's, it's not something that you can reduce to a few simple rules. It's not where you put the commas. It's how we interact with one another and how we attempt to control one another through language and how we attempt to get what we want by saying what we want. It's a marvelous system. And I love studying it, even if there are kinds of precarious situations like, you know, the riot on January 6th or what happens if Google serves you a link that leads you to harm yourself. Those are those are terrible kinds of things to have to deal with. And it turns out to be very hard to figure out how to correct the stuff.
0: Well, Dennis Barron, thank you for doing the hard work of trying to figure these things out and for sharing your thoughts with us today on Forthright Radio. We very much appreciate
1: it. Thank you, Joy.
0: You have just heard a conversation with Dennis Barron, Professor Emeritus of English and Linguistics at the University of Illinois-Urbana-Champaign. His latest book, You Can't Always Say What You Want, The Paradox of Free Speech, is published by Cambridge University Press. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production, hosted and produced by Joy LaClaire. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. And you can also find links to articles referenced or pertinent to the interviews there at forthright.media.